0: What you're making me think is that we need a podcast on Count Chocula, Reese Puffs, Lucky Charms, Frosted Flakes. (laughs) I
1: I hate to say it because
0: I love business.
1: I love capitalism. And I love love the United States. But I think it's honestly like a product of business kind of going a little bit sideways, like trying to sell more cereal. Like I really do.
0: I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. It's not often that people have the opportunity to work on global technology projects to be part of companies that operate at a global scale but for josh moyer jm as he's known internally being one of the two joshes that are part of the levels team well jm he was part of the early team at uber he helped to build out uber new york one of the largest markets for uber in the world and there were a lot of learnings jm saw the market grow from a small handful of rides every week to millions that were done. And he saw the way that technology scaled. He saw the way that you could grow the pie by changing the lens on what it actually meant to create technology that served a purpose. And so JM joined the Levels team in March of 2021. He brought a lot of his experience from Uber, a lot of this grit and rolling up the sleeves to get things done. After Uber, he had become an investor. And as an investor, he spent a lot of time funding companies but he realized that his heart was in building. He wanted to get back into building. And when he saw Levels, he had that same feeling that he did with the early days of Uber. He felt like there was something special. And JM had been using a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor for years. He had his own challenges in trying to get one. And so he had this innate connection with Levels. He really wanted to be part of something that had changed his life. And so we talked about what it means to bring technology to the world, frontier tech that is, how we're going to do it and how we're going to scale. And what are some of the challenges that will come in doing so? JM has had a very storied career. He has an interesting background and we spent a lot of time riffing on it, digging into all these different avenues and experiences that he's had. It was a great conversation and we learned more about his path to levels, where things are at now and where things are headed okay so the path to building levels you've had this really interesting experience in building tech at scale that is addressing a large global problem and doing it from the ground up and so when thinking about this like where where were you before levels and what was your path in
1: sure so i'm always been a startup guy. I started an e-commerce business in college and kind of one thing led to another. And I worked at a bunch of different startups at the early stage and eventually found my way to Uber at the end of 2011, shortly after they launched the New York market. The company was about 30 people at that point, spread all over the world, mostly in San Francisco. New York was actually the first city that they launched after, you know, after SF. And when I came on, you know, We're doing a, a couple dozen rides a day trying to make this thing work. I'm from New York originally. I've been here actually my entire life, including school. Um, and so I was excited to turn on a new transportation network in the city that I love so much. And uh, you now I was one of three people in the New York office. Um, and over about five and a half years, we grew it to be Uber's largest city, doing something like 3 million rides a week by my last day. I think it's Quite a bit higher now. Um, and that was an amazing opportunity. You know, both I, I tended to join startups in that kind of series A, series B time frame when there's like a product on the ground, people like it, small team. But uh, you know, when I learned about Uber, I got a feeling that this was something special, even as my family were kind of confused about it. Like, sounds like a taxi service, and we have really good taxis here. Um, <laughs> But actually the the truth was the taxis in New York are good sometimes for some people, but they're not good for most people most of the time, particularly when it's like raining or busy. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. But um, and, I saw and, a big opportunity with Uber and, and actually I, I hadn't felt that way again until I learned about Levels last summer.
0: When you had joined Uber, this was when, was Travis, like were Travis and Garrett working with the company or was that when Ryan was sort of overseeing things still? That's
1: a good question. This is after Travis returned. He basically came back as CEO, Travis, when they raised the Series A. And so I joined right right around the Series B. So he had already been sort of back in the seat for about 18 months. When I joined, I met him at my interview. Like they flew, I did a bunch of things in New York and then flew out to San Francisco to meet him and the team and sort of get the final stamp. But I didn't know much about him at the time. I just uh, I just really thought like Uber was cool. Like you push a button, a car shows up. At that time, when the app store had kind of just been opened up, you know, the iPhone had existed for only a couple of years, Apple had just opened up the app store to third parties. And the idea of taking a digital action and having an analog result was amazing. Like it felt really magical.
0: Yeah, it's funny too, because you were overseeing arguably, and this might actually be objective, but arguably the most controversial Uber market in the world from a transportation standpoint. So any talk in the news or media always had to do with New York. And part of it was because New York is synonymous with taxis. And New York also has A very interesting. So we're talking New York, the state and New York city as in Manhattan and surrounding areas. But the way that the taxi system worked there from a macroeconomic perspective, where you basically had these legacy, what do they call them? Not tickets, legacy medallions, medallions. That's the name of them, legacy medallions. And so people would have these small pools of like Five to a hundred, depending on the size of their fleet, five to a hundred medallions that all had some economic value as they would get traded and passed down from sure. generation to generation and so the the barrier to entry in operating like starting a taxi fleet was so high in New York, and yeah. Uber was seen as this massively disruptive we'll call it a service or a product to the entire transportation ecosystem, which generated a lot of jobs and a, a lot of people's livelihood and i think people were looking at the problem in the wrong way where it's like oh you're actually creating more value but it was really hard to get alignment so
1: you know ben you you're coming with like a little deeper uber knowledge than i expected here <laughs> these are like pretty uh, well-informed things that you're saying so yes uh <laughs> <laughs> i have a big smile on my face if you were in the room um i really like that you know all that stuff but yes so taxis operate on a medallion system and and New York City is definitely the most like regulated city in the country. It's partially because of how crowded and and busy it is here. It's also just kind of the politics of the place. But um, so, I mean, if, if you fast forward a bit, like Uber New York is the only American city that doesn't have Uber's rideshare product. And so when I say rideshare, I sort of mean like Airbnb for rides. That is... You push a button and a car comes and that car is just driven by me or you, like it's just sort of a regular Joe or Jane and uh, you know they get sort of insured by Uber, but by and large are not a commercial driver. They're just sort of doing this to make a few extra bucks like an Airbnb host would in New York, the market is heavily regulated and actually that's not the product we we run here in New York, Uber latched on to the black car and limousine regulations. Mm which are different than taxis in that you can't wave your arm and flag one down. You have to prearrange them. And and before apps, what a prearrangement was is uh, basically a phone call. So you'd call a dispatcher and say, hey, I'm going to the airport. Can you please pick me up at 5 a.m.? And they'd be kind of waiting for you. And the you know the rate was sort of set in advance. It's not on a meter. You just sort of know, okay, it's going to be 60 bucks to get to the airport. And, and I think the big kind of, uh, you know, at least in, New York, the regulatory rub was that we believe pushing a button on the app is more similar to calling up a dispatcher and requesting a car than it is waving your your hand in the air. And so what Uber did is it kind of tucked into these black car and limousine regulations fairly, in my view. And that is not a supply-constrained system, or at least it wasn't at the time. And so you said earlier how the medallions limited supply, right? And there's about 13,000 of them. And that number hasn't materially changed in like 100 years. The system was initially created to not flood the market. Like I think everybody kind of loses if there's unlimited cars. The drivers potentially won't make enough money. There's a lot more traffic, things like this. But it was clear when we launched that the 13,000 taxis and the roughly 40,000 limousines and black cars and livery cars were not enough to serve the city, particularly parts of the city that are not well-serviced by public transportation. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in Queens, in the outer boroughs, if you're familiar with the city. And yellow taxis are just not something that I ever experienced, saw, rode in, uh, et cetera. They just weren't a thing. I did ride the subway a lot. I lived in a part of Queens that had very good subway access. But the like the majority of the square mileage of New York City are not near transportation options. Like, they're just not a lot. They might be near a bus, kind of, they're probably not close to a subway. The subway system is expansive, but it doesn't reach everybody. And there are times where you just kind of need a ride home. Like it's very late at night or you're going somewhere weird or whatever, um, or you're going to the airport at an odd time. My first interaction with Uber was for an, an airport trip in 2011. And it was really, really early in the morning. It was like 4 a.m. And I requested the car and they couldn't get me one. Which was a bummer. But later that day, I got an email from someone at the company saying, Hey, we saw you tried to order a car um, and we couldn't serve one. Like, here's five bucks off the next ride. And again, at this point, I had never been in an Uber, but I found that interaction so compelling that I opened the app and tried to use it. And because of their analytics and the way they were operating, they knew that I tried and failed to get a car and they acknowledged it and they reached out and they turned potentially a bad experience into a really, into a sort of a really cool one. And I think, That interaction might seem more normal now. In 2010 and 2011, it was kind of, it felt unique. It felt special. That was your path in? Like that was sort of the. That was my first touch point. Yeah. I talked to a community manager there who pinged me and was like, hey, sorry, it didn't work out. And I sort of tucked that away. I didn't end up joining for another eight months, but that was like, oh, this is interesting. You try to get a car and you can't get one, and then they reach out to you and say, sorry. And try that's, to get to one the next time.
0: Yeah, that's wild. Because in in on-demand, I mean, that's par for the course now. Sure. Everybody not only expects it, but also expects it within like
1: Yeah, I mean, minutes. expectations go up over time. We were talking about, I mean, I have a memo that I'm working on now, but it's sort of like one of the points that I make is that expectations go up with time. I think like for levels, the magic moment right now is that you eat something and numbers on your phone start to change. And like, that's amazing. And I think in the future that will be less amazing, but right now it is amazing, right? Like I, I eat this bagel and then the number starts to go up on my phone. No a bagel does that to you. I mean, uh, or a piece (laughs) of bread or, Oh, I, I, I I couldn't hear the sarcasm over your beautiful Canadian accent, but you know, but right. Or like I, you know, or I go for a run and it does this. Right. I take an action in the physical world and something digitally happens. It's almost the opposite of Uber. And so where I take a digital action and something happens in the real world. And so that is really cool. But over time, expectations go up. Oh, a car arrived. Oh, it didn't come in five minutes. Oh, it wasn't clean. Oh, it wasn't cheap. The guy didn't know where he was going. Like expectations go up over time. And so where that magic moment in 2011 was was what it was, over time expectations go up and it becomes
0: less, you know, less magical. And so then what was your path to levels? Like when did you have this similar magic moment? Like where did you first hear of levels? And then what was that sure. touch point that made you feel? Because when when you and I have chatted offline, it seems like you saw the twinkle in levels that you saw in Uber at that time. Yeah. Um. And there's something that is very, I don't like to use the word sacred, but it's like very special, right? Like it's, you realize when you see it, you're like, Oh, this is not the same as everything else.
1: Yeah. Th- there are a few things. I mean, one is that I had sort of taken up metabolic health as a focus during the back half of my time at Uber as I was trying to lose weight. And I was reading a bunch of people about, you know, fasting and time restricted feeding and kind of the more modern research happening around metabolic health. For me, it was about weight loss, but also just about pushing my body to maybe live in a way that it was designed to, or push the limits of what I think is possible. Like there was definitely a time in the last 10 years where I assumed if I didn't eat food for three days, I would die. And it turns out if I don't eat food for three days, I feel amazing. And it's like a nice thing that I now do like once every few months. And I started listening to really smart researchers about this. And and I should add that my family are almost all doctors. (laughs) Like my father, my brother, my uncles, my mom works in a medical office, like I'm sort of surrounded. And so this has been on my radar, but this was sort of a new approach to weight loss and health. And I got really interested in it. And I I was aware of of what CGM was. I kind of casually asked some doctors for it, who all sort of thought that was crazy. They didn't really get why I'd want this device that it's designed for diabetics, why I would want that not being a diabetic and i guess you know for the time between levels and uber i tried on the investor hat in a few different settings and nothing really stuck for me but it was with that hat on that i met levels i think i was uh, i was introduced or i was in a fund that that got involved and i just it sort of got on my radar and all of a sudden on twitter this is like summer of 2020 i'm seeing all these pictures of people with this cool l patch on their the back of their arm with a cgm underneath and this new app called levels that like adds an insight layer on top of it and also helps you get the cgm and i thought that was amazing and so i remember sending a frantic dm to josh founder josh and uh saying like hey like i really want to get involved and actually that was more just like i want to try it like get me one of these you know at this point the wait list was very long and i think absent a connection to the folks at the company it was going to be hard to get one and so i kind of banged down the door i got my hands on one thought it was amazing i actually invested in the company and then like around christmas time like later that year you know and at this point i was kind of running an investment firm that i founded and did a fundraise for and i just was like really not having fun like i just wasn't really enjoying myself and i think the the main reason for that is i'm naturally a builder and as an investor you're sort of focused on a thousand different things and you're one step removed from the building and I wanted to build personally, like with my own hands, like I'm the startup guy and that works. I think th- there's sort of like a trend where people who do the operating thing for a while and have some success flip over to the investor side. I know a lot of people who do that and it's a common trend. And so I just sort of assumed that's what I should do, but that was wrong. And I think in some ways I was just waiting to be wowed again in the same way that I was with Uber. And I just didn't know if that was ever going to come, but it did. And so, I, you know, as I, Tried the product, got to know the team, particularly Josh and Sam, and kind of understood how they operated. And then honestly, the like weekly forum videos, I mean, they just really remind me of the early days at Uber. They really do. You know, really cool and interesting things happening every week. Everyone is really engaged. You can just sort of feel that vibe. Yeah, Yeah, you can feel it. You can feel that vibe through those videos. It's incredibly effective sending those around. And so I said, oh my gosh, this feels just like, you know, look, I was at Uber for five and a half years. I'd say the first three were super fun. And then the back half was like running a big company that was often mired in scandal. And so the beginning part was the really fun part. And this felt like that. That's what I kind of imagined. And I met people and actually a good friend of mine who I worked with at Uber, Miz, I suggested that he take a close look at levels because they were looking for a head of ops. And, um, he'd worked on something similar to levels minus the CGM and that did not work out. And so I, uh, you know, I made an introduction and, and he joined and had only like the most positive things to say. And so around Christmas time last year, this is like December of 2020, I was like, you know, maybe I should just talk to these guys, like see what they say if I'm like, hey, hire me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I filled out the job form. Just because like they already knew me. I was an investor, but I didn't want to just like, ping them randomly. So I like, went through the process. I'm like, okay, like, let me fill out this type form and like tell them that I want to work there. <laughs> and so that's what I did. And then Josh reached out. He's like, whoa, serious? And I'm like, yeah, I think so. Like, you only live once, man. And I'm like, not passionate about what I'm working on right now. And I can't stop thinking about this. And I think this is going to be a huge deal. So like, let's talk. And then one thing led to another.
0: It's really funny because you're... so we're going to refer to you as JM.
1: Yes, my and Levels then,
0: friends call me JM. And then we've got Josh Clemente, whom people who have listened to the pod are familiar with by now, either through yep. listening to other podcasts or this one, um, Josh Clemente, founder of Levels. So Josh in in 20, we'll call it like 2017 was really when his journey with CGM started. But he had this similar challenge that you had where you both became interested in metabolic health and went to go get a CGM and realized like the process of getting one prescribed had so much friction to it because of subjectivity and bias towards use cases for the device. And when I say this, I mean, with physicians, like if you went to a doctor and said like, Hey, can I get one of these prescribed people laughed at you and you experienced that with your own family where people are like, Man, what are you talking about? You're like you are actually losing your mind. And you're like, no, no, I want more insight on my own the yeah. data behind my metabolic health. Yeah, I want it, to understand my it blood was more, glucose.
1: It was even more broad than that. Like I would sort of watch my dad, who's an internist, and just sort of think about, you know, the process. I'm like, okay, so people come in once a year and you take their blood and you look at what it says in it. And then like that's what's going on with them. But like what if that day is weird? Like, what if they didn't sleep well the night before? What if they before the blood test? What if they took a long walk on the way to your office? And like, I just don't think that taking a test, you know, for most tests, like having it be one spot, and then that's it for the year. Like, that's not how we would manage our car. It's not how we would manage our computer or our home or really kind of anything. Just like, how's it going? Okay, good. See you in a year. We have, if you think about the tooling on a car, like the sensors that come in modern cars, like, or on an airplane or any of these things, like hundreds of sensors that tell you exactly how everything is doing. And it just kind of seemed to me intuitively that that's the direction we're likely going to go in for personal health. You know, so many outcomes are driven by when an underlying issue is discovered. Like, like someone dies if they don't find something soon enough, or they're fine if they find it soon enough. So like the only difference is the serendipity of when they go and have a test. That's whack. I mean, right? Like that's crazy. So continuous monitoring and glucose, I think is, you know, great first step. Obviously we, we think about a broader, a broader range of things we should be looking at. I actually typically use the scale as an example. Like I'm going to weigh myself once a year and you're going to tell me like how I'm doing based on that. I mean, that is even more like, you know did I go to the bathroom this morning is going to impact that one, you know? And that's just, it's just all so crazy. And so I think, you know, tracking stuff, like generally, like looking at metrics and recording data and and seeing the bigger picture rather than just one moment in time just intuitively feels right to me. Um, and so, yeah, I was like, yeah, this like CGM thing sounds pretty cool. So I was testing my own blood with a finger stick and uh, ketones as well. So like I would try to eat like, only fat and protein and then like check for ketones and see how I'm doing. And the ketone strips were like $5 each. And so like in 2015, I emailed Abbott and was like, hey, can I buy 10,000 of these? Because <laughs> I think there's an opportunity and like you're charging too much and people want this and this is a thing. And they like, the email response was the close to like a corporate, ha you're out of your mind, please go away as you would get from them. So I like also sort of intuitively felt like there was a, an opportunity
0: to sort of expand this stuff and push it further. Yeah, like data and insight, personalized data and insight about one's own metabolic health, one's yeah. own health in in general. And it's interesting that you you started down this similar path of saying, I feel there's an opportunity here and then fast forward to yeah. we'll say January of 21, right? So December of sure. 20 you reach out to the team you're already familiar yeah. with them and I think you and I first connected in early January and we had this conversation where it was pretty clear that you could feel it based on what you were saying and the way that you were communicating, but that you just felt this innate sense to build, to really build. And it was something that you missed. I always refer to it as like shoveling dirt, like digging dirt (laughs) in the early stages where you just wanted to get, roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty because that's the stage that we're at right now as a company. And there's a lot of, there are many, many hard problems to solve being in beta right now, knowing that we haven't launched and we, like, we're still finding product market fit.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I even love that approach. Like, it's not even my natural sensibility to, like, we're not in growth. Like, we're, we're going to just try to figure this out. Like, we're not trying to maximize X, Y, Z. That is actually not a natural state for me. I'm like, let's go grow it as fast as we can. But actually, it's, it makes perfect sense. And I think it is literally the correct answer the way that we're doing it here, just being very methodical and trying to understand how people value this and and what else we can bring to them that they'll value and and sort of what the what the future looks like. And I think it's, um, you know, in sort of reading, I think part of the process of me joining was the folks, you know, like Sam and Josh just sending me tons of documents that they had like written over a year of all their thinking. Here's how I think about regulation. Here's how I think about the future. Here's how, you know, it's all so well documented. And I'd be remiss not to mention like my views on remote work and async work. I think when I first talked to Josh, he was the first person I spoke to at Levels and he told me that it was like fully remote. I remember thinking like, oh, that's too bad. (laughs) Like there should be a Levels that's not remote because that'll be better. And it turns out like I completely flipped on that. That is wrong. Remote actually is, is perfect for this. It enables just a much wider geography of people. You're not limited to one city or one country. And our team is now about 25% international. Like that is not in the US. So you get better folks. And I don't know that I would like be able to do an office right now. Um, I got a couple of kids. There are parts of my life that just this was easier for me to do as a remote job. And I think cutting out the fat of a commute and office ritual just lets me do kind of way more and focus on the things that I should be working on rather than like coming to the office and having a cup of coffee and like going to lunch and seeing everybody. Like that's all wonderful, but we're like kind of just down to business here. And um, I really like that.
0: Yeah, you can really push it. And so you came on board. I don't remember the exact date. March 1st, 2021, exactly three months ago today. Look at that. So you came on board and what role did
1: you come into? Global head of ops, which I think, you know, the global there is that, International launch is something that we're thinking about, like once we nail u s or at least once we get to a point in the u s where we feel like it's ready to go, we can uh, launch in Canada and other English speaking countries in Europe, and there's some sort of aspirations beyond that and so the first sort of high level task really that was told to me before I started before I got the offer was like, yeah, like we're thinking about international. We sort of have to duplicate everything we do, taking into consideration regs and Market and like norms and supplier availability and like you know Dexcom has a different API for other countries like there's just basically every little detail needs to be thought through and and so they thought that that would be a good one for me and then Dexcom just generally as a relationship I, I sort of lead for now um and so I think it was sort of like there's a lot going on at levels we're we're doing a lot of stuff we are running basically a flat org, but there's like no shortage of work, so here's a bunch of things. <laughs> And uh, that's, you know, that's what I'm doing now.
0: And this is where the analog comes in of Uber experience to two levels. And part of it is building tech at scale. Part of it is the regulatory environment. Part of it is logistics based. And yeah. although the logistics and KPIs are completely different, there's still carryover and experience that sure. that's transferable. But as we're starting to think about some of the challenges that we'll face what are things that you're thinking about with international? Like, how are we going to solve this extremely hard problem globally, not just from a logistics perspective, but from a mission perspective, which is to yeah. solve the metabolic health crisis?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, one thing at, at Uber that was surprising, but I guess maybe intuitive if you think about it, is that transportation is a very personal thing. When you get into the back of a car and go somewhere, It's just it's very personal and sensitive. It has some locations attached to it. You're going somewhere. Maybe you're stressed because you got to get to work on time, or you're going on a date and you're nervous, or or whatever. You're going to the airport and you're afraid you might miss your flight. But it's not just timing. There's something about the experience of transportation that is very personal and really strikes a nerve with a lot of people. And I think similarly, you know, with levels, we are giving people this opportunity to probably for the first time wear uh, an invasive sensor on their bodies and and sort of, it's a bit, I think I said this earlier, but it's a bit kind of the opposite of Uber where you take a digital action and something happens in the analog world. Here, something happening in the analog world via the sensor is going to start to appear on your phone. So, you know, you, you eat a bagel and the numbers go up and there's something similarly magical and sensitive about that. Healthcare data obviously is probably one of the most sensitive things we could be handling. And so, when it comes to international launch and rebuilding our infrastructure in each country, there are regulations we consider. For example, how is CGM sold? In many places, it's over the counter, but there are still regs on how to ship it, how to store it. Folks who are able to do logistics for you, different currency issues, different support. You know, If, if we're launching Europe, we might want to have support folks who are online at their daytime, which for us is sort of the middle of the night. Sometimes, and so there are sort of it's really have to map the full surface area of our business here in the United States and and figure out what the analog is in each place and so I don't think it's going to be particularly difficult it's just there's just a lot there's a lot there
0: yeah, and I think that there there are certain things that come with the territory of building in exciting new we'll call them frontier spaces, so you experienced sure. this with Uber where in 2010 2011 like early days of uber it was new technology and with new technology and excitement and we'll call it the media hype cycle and everything that happens through social which has gone up exponentially as a side note like in the past 10 years um you get certain things that we will experience globally i mean we'll experience it domestically in the u.s but globally we'll experience me too companies me too in totally. the sense of not just competitors yeah. but full on copycats where they take your exact platform and they go cool they change it to jevels like yeah. whatever it is <laughs> and copy it exactly right but we'll, we'll experience <laughs> we'll experience me too there're going to be challenges with regulation challenges with managing press and challenges with things like privacy so i think there there are a lot of analogs that you've seen this once, like through the lens of Uber, you saw this once in the full gamut of all these challenges that come with scaling global tech and doing it sure. really fast to not only create a great product and impact uh, as many people as possible and create a great experience and all yeah. these things, but doing so to maintain a position as a market leader. Because when it comes down to that part of execution, there is a cadence that comes with maintaining market leadership. Like you can't be resting on your laurels and have your feet up on the Ottoman and expect that you can maintain a position. Yeah, Yeah. I mean look, I
1: love the you said Ottoman. Everyone everyone should get a chance to put their feet up on an Ottoman sometimes. I think there are broadly two types of competitors in my mind. At least this will probably be the case for us. You know, competitor type one, and I think we just saw this recently and I'm not going to say the name, but like a business operating in a similar space that just like straight up copied our website, emails photo treatments like it's a joke and there will be some of you know they're going to do the arm patches too this is someone else that i'm thinking of or just like some of the stuff we do it's like really a carbon copy and so that's kind of flattering because it shows that we're influencing them and also it validates what we're doing i think if there are other folks trying to do it too it shows that we're not actually that crazy that there is something here And then sort of the second category is ones that are more vaguely competing with us that are maybe doing something adjacent and could eventually overlap with us. I mean, I think ultimately our high level goal is to build a durable and defensive and defensible business at levels. And if we do that, the competition stuff will sort of take care of itself. But uh, yeah, you know, I think broadly speaking, competitors validate what you do. Um, It shows that there is broad interest in something. And I think that's a good thing.
0: I haven't seen it too much. Sam's heard more of it, I think, in the tech and startup ecosystem. But you saw it with Uber, which is like, we are Uber for... Levels for X. X, yeah. And so we'll start to see levels for X, where it's, you see it with certain companies. Like, we are superhuman for X. We are right. Slack for X. We are Uber for X. I think Ubers there's like
1: kind of no examples of successful companies that are something for something. You know what I mean? Like, you know, right? Are, you able, are there any examples that come to minds that are like successful companies that started as uber for blank or anything for anything
0: there are like i'd push back on it i think that there are and what happens is you start to find especially and this is like fun to talk about and digress to is the nerdiness of unbundling marketplaces or unbundling SaaS products where like the legacy players so let's take a marketplace verticalization of a marketplace like StockX. Sure. X. Sure. They eBay unbundled. For shoes. Yeah. Exactly. They unbundled eBay for shoes. Same thing with reverb. eBay for guitars. And sure. Oh, I didn't know about that one. I gotta check that out. That's a cool. Great platform. Great platform Ooh, to find vintage gear. It's it's oh, stock like X, but for guitars. So it's stock verified like yeah. vintage guitars. You can buy it like all years. But I think what happens is when new companies come into a space and they start to unpack like we are superhuman for X or whatever platform for Y. It's harder to get to meaningful scale like stock X. They might have really engaged users and great LTV. That might be true. I don't know. But it's harder to get to the same scale that like Uber would have got to because Uber became a wider suite of products.
1: If you're more general, there's maybe a big opportunity. But I don't know with shoes like and I think it is sort of blank for blank. In some ways, though, it's like an unbundling. Like, okay, eBay is going to be everything. And so StockX is going to be shoes. And I think there are definitely some examples of like businesses that have tried to do everything and then slowly like new entrants come and snipe out individual things. Because frankly, a marketplace designed around shoes and only does shoes is probably going to do a better job with shoes than an eBay. Exactly. Concert tickets, you know, the stub hubs of the world are kind of better at that than eBay. Like there's a structured data component. I use StockX to buy a specific kind of running shoe that I just can't get my hands on here. Um and it's great. And they do the authenticity thing, like there's just more to it. I think of that more as an unbundling than a like blank for blank, but I definitely hear your point. And I think in some ways, you know, you could sort of view levels a bit as unbundling um healthcare. I think in a certain age demographic, like. People aren't getting to the doctor every year, but the decisions they make now will definitely have long term impact, some of which wouldn't really even show up if they did go to the doctor regularly. And so we're sort of promoting a new, uh, a newish view on medicine and, and health, like metabolic health as a focus, you know, as it's sort of the center of everything. You know, someone said, we don't know what our food does to us. That's a genius line, right? Because we don't. You know, we're living in this part of our evolution where there's abundance of everything. We sleep in heated rooms and we have unlimited food. And as Josh likes to say, you know, we might encounter in one day more carbohydrates than our ancestors did in a lifetime. And I'm talking about going back a little further than just the last couple hundred years. And those changes in humanity have led to all sorts of new diseases that didn't exist before. Um, A lot of it seems kind of self-inflicted.
0: Yeah. And I think I think that is right to say that we are we're taking one specific part of understanding we'll call it health and wellness, of understanding one's own data behind their metabolic health. We're taking that small part. It's almost and I don't want to compare us to Amazon, but the stage we're at. We're at the Amazon book stage, or like we'll call it like the Tesla Roadster stage, right? Where We're really focusing on one specific thing right now to find product market fit, to unbundle this one aspect of this very, very massive ecosystem. And from there, we can start to build out to make it a much better experience across a gamut of products and services and all these things that make people, A, give them an incredible experience, but also give them better insight and personalization to things that shouldn't be like health should just be your right. Health is not a privilege. It should not be a privilege. It should be everybody's yeah, right. I agree.
1: And I think, you know, if you look at the United States, we're just spending more per citizen on healthcare than any country in the world and but doesn't have the best healthcare outcomes. In fact, I think outcomes are actually getting worse. You know, life expectancy is going down. We're the richest country in the world, we're spending more than anyone, we can do this well, but the system is really borked in a lot of ways. Um, and I think, you know, I think the mission here is probably even stronger than Amazon's. And, you know, Amazon touches my life every day. And I hope we can have a 10th of the impact on the world that they have. But the mission is, is clear. There's a crisis. People are living less well and less long than they ought to be, than they have in the past. And then you'd think they would for the amount of money we spend on all this stuff. And, uh, you know, a lot of that spend is geared towards later in life. There's a preventative sort of aspect that I think is often ignored. Um, And that's where we're focused, right? If you can help people understand, you know, I have this memory growing up and like I was always a little chubby and that peaked when I, after I had my first kid and I've kind of reined that in through a bunch of things, including focus on metabolic health. I remember as a kid, like eating cereal in the morning, which itself is just an, is a, the institution of breakfast, I think deserves a separate Podcast um, with someone smarter than me on that topic, but it's sort of like total nonsense, like the most important meal of the day. Like, here's a bowl of carbs, like, go for it. I remember, and we're similar age, you may remember this too, a pyramid in the back of the cereal box. It's like the, you know, the food health pyramid, sponsored by the American Medical Association. You might not have seen it exactly that way, but the gist of it was that it's a pyramid and the base is the stuff you should eat the most of. And that's, of course, you know, cereals and carbs and, and things like that. And at the top of the pyramid is like, you know, bad things like oils and fats. Mm, Don't eat any of that. Fat is fat. I mean, kind of a funny name for the thing, you know, but, and that like turns out that was like exactly backwards. And I don't think you or I are that old that like the world has changed so much. Like we just have been giving people bad information and there's a bunch of reasons. Some of them are nefarious. Some of them are honest mistakes. (laughs) Some of them are just, we didn't know better yet, but boy, oh boy, people just don't know. You know, the calorie, this sort of like 100 plus year old idea, like when you burn something, the heat sort of, you know, it creates the energy that it takes to raise one milliliter of water, one degree Celsius, like that's the center of metabolic health, the calorie, like calories in, calories out, a donut is the same as a steak, like, come on. So there's all this stuff out there that's just wrong, (laughs) And I forget the question you asked, but I just get so amped up thinking about all the misinformation I was fed my entire life. Like, oh, you're a little fat. You should just like try to eat a little less. Just eat a little less, right? Because calories and calories out, 2000 calories is a pound, just eat a little less. You're either like mesmerized by what I'm saying, or I've lost the connection. It's one of those. (laughs) No,
0: (laughs) what you're making me think is that we need a podcast on Count Chocula, Reese Puffs, Lucky Charms, Frosted Flakes. I I I hate to say it because I
1: love business. I love capitalism. And I love the United States. But I think it's honestly like a product of business kind of going a little bit sideways, like trying to sell more cereal. Like I really do. And, uh, you know, the sugar industry sponsoring studies. I mean, it is very similar, unfortunately, to like cigarette companies sponsoring research in the 50s and 60s that said it wasn't a big deal to smoke. And of course it is, it kills you. And so I think there's probably a similar thing. You know, I am not a perfect eater. I eat garbage too. But I think what Levels has helped me do is kind of moderate that and keep a record of it and hold myself accountable. I'm not the kind of person who's going to be able to eat clean for my whole life, but you can't manage what you don't measure. So Levels has given me a way to keep, to really hold myself to account on the things I eat, on the exercise I do, and that has improved my metabolic health. Tech startups are like the new garage bands. I feel like we would have like gone and started a little band and wrote some songs to try to do it. And like, but now the kids start companies over the yeah internet. man. And it's sort of like there are there is a lot of similarities um, between startups and garage bands. I
0: love it, man.